All right, Caitlin. I know you know this, so in case anyone else out there is interested in doomsday prepping, how much is one of those fancy un in the ground bunkers with all the end of the world supplies going to actually set you back? So the shoebox in the ground, mm-hmm. $50,000. Okay. The mansion in the ground that I want, <laughs> $10 million. And doesn't this include a bowling alley, a, bowling a pool, alley, a... A sauna, oh, a yes. gun range, okay. a garden. <laughs> wow. A underground parking garage. <laughs> Okay, so um, if you can actually afford one of those, then the end of the world can come at any time Mm -hmm. because I'll also be there. It does have lots of room. Sounds good to me. Well, the bunker in this particular story is not the $10 million one or the $50,000 one. I would call it the $5 one. (laughs) (laughs) If that. The mole hole. Yes, the mole hole. Ugh. Well, like Jen just said, Mm -hmm. the bunker in this episode is not $10 million. No. So while we've been covering some pretty bleak stuff lately, and while this story is without a doubt one of the most horrific things a human being can go through, it is also a victory story about one of the most badass young women we've ever come across. We do need to give a trigger warning that while we will be telling this story with the utmost respect for the victims involved, this episode does contain discussion of sexual assault involving minors. So without further ado, if you're sticking around, settle back into your couches because camping is canceled after the harrowing and heroic story of Elizabeth Schof, the girl in the bunker. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountains call my number Our story today takes place in 2006 in the small rural town of Lugoff, South Carolina. For reference, Lugoff is just about 30 minutes away from the state's capital of Columbia, South Carolina, which is a really busy college football town. But unlike Columbia, Lugoff definitely has the feel of being more out in the country, with homes spread apart so they feel more isolated, and many of them are set pretty far back in some woods, like back from main roads. And it's not unusual for someone's driveway to be more of a gravel path through dense woods on either side that then opens up to the house and the yard at the end. And this was just how the Schof family's little gray house was situated, where 14-year-old Elizabeth Schof, who goes by Lizzie, lived with her mom Madeline, her dad Don, and her little brother Donnie. At around 3.30 p.m., Lizzie was making her way down their gravel driveway, just like she did every day walking home from the bus stop. She was feeling pretty great about having just started high school, And she'd also gotten a new boyfriend. And we do need to say that for a 14-year-old just starting high school, she did not look anything like Caitlin and I did. (laughs) We have discussed our awkward adolescence, and Lizzie was certainly a super cute adolescent. She had, like, gorgeous, super dark curly hair, big dark eyes that, like, 
really pretty olivey skin. My skin was rough at that stage mm-hmm. and teeth are rough. Yeah, let's just say I try not to think about those days too much. But Lizzie was doing really awesome. And she was definitely having one of those moments as a teenager where you're like, hell yeah, I've arrived. Everything's going great. I like my class. I like my friends. I've got a boyfriend. I just started high school. I'm no longer a dorky middle schooler. She was in her era. On that particular day of September 6, 2006, right after Lizzie and her friends had gotten dropped off at the bus stop, her friend's older brother rolled up alongside them in his car to pick up his little brother, and he offered to give Lizzie and the rest of her friends a lift home. But Lizzie said no thanks. Her walk home was so short that she really didn't need a ride. And it was a nice day out, and she'd made that walk a thousand times before. And if anything, she was also feeling a tad guilty, because like so many of us did when we were 14, she'd had an argument with her mom that morning right before she left for school and had said some pretty mean stuff. And she knew she still needed to smooth things over with her. Her little brother, Donnie, would also be getting home around the same time Lizzie was, and she planned to call her mom as soon as she was in their house to let her know she'd made it home like she always did before she started her homework. At around 4.30 p.m., the phone rang inside the chauffeur's house, and Donnie answered. It was his and Lizzie's mom, Madeline, and she was calling from work to check in because she hadn't heard from Lizzie that she had gotten home, and that was highly unusual. Donnie said, no, she wasn't there, and immediately Madeline was worried enough to leave work and come straight home, hoping it was just a misunderstanding and that Lizzie would be showing up at the house at the same time she got there. While Madeline was still at work waiting to hear from Lizzie, the 14-year-old had made it most of the way down their long gravel driveway and was so close to the house that their family's dogs had already spotted her and started happily barking and wagging in the front yard, when suddenly Lizzie heard a rustling a little ways off in the woods. The rustling was coming from a man whom she did not recognize, who was standing in the thick leaves wearing camouflage pants, a green shirt, and a hand-drawn round badge that looked like the ones the Herkshaw County Sheriff's deputies wore. He was a short distance away from her in the trees, but started talking directly to her and said that he was a policeman and that they'd found marijuana on the chauffeur's property. He then said that her little brother, Donnie, had already been arrested and that she was going to need to come with him as well. As a 14-year-old myself, I would immediately have been a little bit sus, I guess, Mm -hmm. but the area that she lived in, I know this from having family that live in this like specific area when you live in like a rural town that's densely wooded apparently it's pretty common for people to grow weed on those properties or even to like break onto somebody's property that isn't yours and like try to have a little weed patch um and you won't get caught unless helicopters Mm. fly overhead because you can't see it so 
it's very possible that she knew of this happening like on other properties and so when he said that she wasn't immediately like what the hell no like no one in my family is growing weed (laughs) she's like oh well maybe they did find it saying that he had her brother yes that's when you're like oh oh yeah yeah and she's only 14 that's very very young that's a young teenager so just the the authority figure telling you you need to come with me that's that would have been enough to make me be like oh yes sir with those words alarm bells went crazy inside lizzie's gut and she knew something wasn't right but this man said he was a police officer and especially as a kid we're taught to obey police officers So even if she wasn't sure if she entirely believed that he was who he said, she felt this immediate heightened pressure to submit to his authority. Then when he said he had her brother and even called him by name, and in her mind, that was a good enough reason to approach him, even though she knew in her bones that this was an unsafe situation. And her gut was 100% correct because Vincent Filia was no police officer. He was a dangerous sexual predator who had been watching Elizabeth on her walk home from school for days, growing increasingly obsessed with her and memorizing her daily routine so that he knew exactly when she got off the bus and where she would be most alone and vulnerable, right at the end of her own damn driveway. And he had been meticulously planning this moment for months. Vincent Filial doesn't even sound like a real name. It's it's such a odd Filial. Yeah, such a weird, gross name. And she's trying to be a good sister here because what are you gonna do if someone says you have their brother? You're gonna be like, okay, well, take me to them. I would immediately then yeah. feel like I needed to go with that person. Well, and then also like, parents aren't home. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? And you're also in your property. Like, you're not in the middle of town. Mm -hmm. You're a stone's throw from your house. So you're already like, oh, this is fine. You feel safe because you're in your space. And he's really just setting the trap for her to walk in. Lizzie walked towards the man in the woods, the uneasy feeling in the pit of her stomach churning, but the thought of her little brother being in danger and needing to get to where he was overrode her own instincts to run. As soon as Lizzie was in arm's reach of the man, he pulled out a pair of handcuffs and snapped her wrists behind her back. She knew then that she was trapped. He then took out one of those wire bicycle lock cords, the kind that's wrapped in thick plastic, with a small metal box attached to the end, and he hung it around her neck, and then told her that there was a bomb in the box, and it would detonate if she tried to run. He blindfolded Lizzie and led her for what felt like an eternity deep into the woods, walking her in circles for over an hour until she was completely disoriented and thought they must surely be miles and miles away from her home. As soon as he began leading her away, he asked her two questions. Did she have a cell phone? 
she didn't and was she a virgin uh, my skin is immediately crawling so horrifying and you know that at the moment when he asked her that that would have been there is no question in my mind that this person has nefarious intentions disgusting it is, ugh, yeah elizabeth began to cry pleading with her captor not to kill her and asking him over and over where donnie was all vincent filial responded was that she was a smart girl and she should have figured that out by now. Ugh. At this point, Lizzie knows this man has absolutely no intention of taking her to the police or returning her to her family. She had been kidnapped, and her situation was dire. Through her tears, and despite the complete traumatic shock to her nervous system of going from walking home from school to being led away blindfolded into the woods in handcuffs, and told she had a fucking bomb around her neck. Oh my gosh. Lizzie still had the presence of mind to work her feet out of her shoes and drop them behind like breadcrumbs. Mm. Praying that they would be found and point authorities in the right direction to find her. Yes, Lizzie. So yeah, Vincent, she is a smart girl. Yes, she is. And after what felt like an eternity, but was actually just around an hour, Vincent brought Lizzie to a stop deep in the middle of the woods. Lizzie would share in a later interview that when they finally stopped walking and everything around them was dead silent, she genuinely believed that these were going to be the final moments of her life and that she was about to be raped, then murdered. But instead... Vincent Filia reached down into the thick bed of leaves on the ground, lifted the plywood hatch of a totally concealed bunker dug 15 feet deep into the earth, and ordered Lizzie to climb down inside it. Now, before we go any further, we need to talk about genuinely one of the most disgusting and hideous, both inside and out, mm -hmm. individuals we have ever needed to scrub from our brains. Vincent Filia. In September 2006, he was a 36-year-old man and at the time of the attack was an unemployed building construction worker and suspected sex offender who had been living in Lugoff undetected for months with a warrant out for his arrest since the previous November. Apparently, he had been dating a woman with a 12-year-old daughter. Oh my god. And one night, he had let himself into the room of where she and her daughter were asleep in the same bed. He'd woken up the 12-year-old girl, told her that if she freaked out and didn't do what he'd said, he would kill her mother, then led her into the next room and sexually assaulted her. The police had been actively looking for him, but horrifyingly, he had kept a quite literal low profile for himself by digging fucking tunnels underground and using them to avoid openly crossing through areas that police were most likely to see him. So he's literally a mole person. <laughs> a disgusting mole person with a predatory compulsion that is so bad that he's willing to risk blowing his cover. Like, even though he'd gone to the effort of digging tunnels and knew that there was a warrant out for his arrest, he's like... I can't stop myself and I have to 
carry out another predatory plan because he's a disgusting mole person. Like, straight to kidnapping. Yeah. I don't know. It almost makes you feel like he had the horrible incident that happened where he assaulted the 12-year-old mm-hmm. who you know he only started dating that woman because he knew she had a 12-year-old daughter, which is disgusting in and of itself. But then that immediately after he got caught by her, he just kind of isolated himself and then started plotting his yeah, next Yeah, he was thing. underground yeah. digging. Oh my gosh. And was like, I'm going to do it again ASAP but better so that I don't get caught. Ugh. What in the fuck? So on top of this, Philia was also a known survivalist, which in and of itself is totally fine. Caitlin will happily take any and all links for your top 10 survivalist products. Yes, please. Do what you want with your own time and money as long as you're not hurting anyone. But that ability to hunker down and isolate for days, live off the land, and combining that with the mindset of a sexual predator like Vincent Filia is terrifying. So that should give you a pretty clear picture of the absolute sick and twisted person he is and the kind of person who would abduct an innocent child from her own driveway, lead her to believe that she could be blown to pieces at any second, and was now ordering her to climb down into this dark and, we can probably safely assume, disgusting smelling hole he has dug into the ground, which was just one of apparently multiple bunkers he had dug in the area. So this dude clearly had a lot of time on his hands (laughs) and something special again had he gone a different path he could have been a youtube like hit digging his holes like those little oh jungle my boys gosh. <laughs> like i would at 2 a.m i know we both would be watching those videos um he could also have done any literally any other Anything. manual labor he could have been picking apples he could have been harvesting i don't know <laughs> I mean, I don't want to knock him because, like, I mean, I want a bunker. Yes. But he went about it weird. But you're also not a predator, so. Exactly. Yeah. Benson followed Lizzie down the ladder into the bunker, closing and latching the trap door behind them. This next bit gets a bit rough, guys, so if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead. 30 seconds. Before Lizzie's eyes could even adjust to her dark surroundings, Vincent forced the terrified 14-year-old little girl out of her clothing, put a heavy chain around her neck, and violently raped her. Even amidst the trauma and violation of this horrific assault, Lizzie forced herself to pay attention to her surroundings. The dirt bunker was just four feet wide, 20 feet long, and seven feet high. Filia had manually dug the entire thing with a shovel (laughs) into the side of a hill next to a trailer that belonged to him. It had a crude hand-dug toilet, a makeshift bed, and shelves made from branches and canvas. There were camping stoves and dishes, a well, and a little ventilation system to let the smoke out for cooking. 
It also appeared to be well-stocked with canned and packaged food and clothing, and it was immediately apparent to Lizzie that this was made deliberately by someone who planned to be able to use it for a very long time. She also noticed there were multiple guns, a flare gun, a taser, and two homemade grenades. Fuck. Ugh. The two homemade grenades is maybe the most scary thing yeah. of all of that. Because he probably made them super jankily, so they could have just blown them to hell pretty at janky, any second. So. Yeah. There were also cigarettes and a great deal of pornography. <sighs> Apparently, Vincent just had pornography literally everywhere with him all the time in his personal possessions because of his raging sexual addictions sex addiction (laughs) (laughs) and before anyone comes at us we are not saying that people who look at pornography are sexual deviants at all no and ethical porn is a well and good industry we are not saying that pornography in and of itself is what we are gagging at. It was this, this particular situation. individual yes. and everything he does with it and goes on to do. Yes. He was so sex obsessed that it had become a compulsion and addiction. He could not be without to the point of him now having carefully planned and executed this kidnapping and violent assault. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, he's not on the normal level no he's uh, he's gone and it was also not the pornography that drove him to do this because i like we've talked about before just you and i ted bundy liked to excuse all of the heinous atrocities he committed by saying that he did it because he was addicted to pornography i call massive bullshit on that I have no doubt he did have a violent pornography addiction, but it was that plus his needs to torment Mm -hmm. and abuse and violently assault women that drove him to do it and the choices he made. Not, oh, porn made me do this. That's a very weak and lazy excuse. Those little maid pornos, that doesn't make me clean. (laughs) (laughs) handyman pornos that doesn't make me fix anything yes exactly it's not the viewing of something that then makes you go do it it's the choices that Mm -hmm. you make and all of the other perfect storm of things that come together to make somebody do that stuff and if you do have those tendencies somebody would probably disagree with me but i would gather that maybe you shouldn't be escalating it by viewing that violent sexual content doesn't seem like it would do good things for you but who are we who are we to say after phil y'all was finished raping lizzie he told her that she still had the bomb in the box around her neck and that he also had bombs and booby traps rigged up around the hatch of the bunker and all around a wider perimeter surrounding it so that not only would she be blown up if she tried to escape, but if she so much as called out for help and anyone tried to approach, they would be blown to smithereens as well. Now, as you can imagine... Back at the Shof's house, as all of this was happening with Lizzie, 
her parents, Madeline and Don, were in a state of full-blown panic. It was now three hours since Madeline had first made the phone call from work asking if Lizzie had made it home. And not only had she obviously never come home, but Madeline's frantic phone calls after that to all of her friends and their family members and even her efforts going around door to door in the neighborhood had turned up absolutely nothing. At around 7.30 p.m., the sheriffs called 911 and reported Elizabeth missing. And this would be the first of several questionable things that law enforcement would go on to do that at the very least wasted precious time and at most, as we will go on to see, easily could have cost Lizzie her life. When the police first came to the Shof's home, they did what we hear far too often in these types of cases. They reassure two desperate parents who are insistent that they know their own child and that they would not run away, that they are wrong and that their child had most likely run away. Oh my gosh. And I, I get like a cop, like you, you play out all your bases. You're like, well, let's not jump to the worst case yeah. scenario. And they're working from their own frame of reference. So if they have dealt with runaway cases, they're going to be like, well, this is probably another runaway case. But as the parent, I'd be like, listen here, motherfucker. Yes. Did not run away. But when you have a couple that is insistent mm-hmm. that that family is one that is in good standing with law enforcement, mm-hmm. that their child does not have some sort of reputation as being a troublemaker. I mean, even if they do, it doesn't matter. But the fact that there's literally nothing to lead them like, to suspect to that she was a runaway, especially as a 14-year-old mm-hmm. That is a, again, a very young teenager. Like, I would never have dreamed of just taking off when I was 14. I would have not even made it down the block before. You never packed a suitcase with all your stuffed animals and been like, peace out, bitches? No. Y'all didn't give me a cookie, so. My stranger danger was far too high. Yeah, you know, I I always (laughs) made it to the end of the driveway and I was like, ah, fuck. But where would I really go? (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Uh, Madeline and Don absolutely did not accept law enforcement's initial dismissal of their 14-year-old child's absence. They knew their daughter. They knew she would never just take off unannounced. And even if in some alternate universe she had, she was a 14-year-old girl who liked her stuff. Mm -hmm. All of which was in her room exactly where she'd left it that morning. None of her clothes or suitcases or makeup or even a sleeping bag were gone. Over the next few hours, they continued to press law enforcement until they began speaking with all of the kids who had ridden the bus with Lizzie that day. And when every single one of them said they had watched Lizzie get off at a normal stop and had been her totally normal, happy self, it was like something clicked into place and they realized this was no runaway situation. No shit. Fine. I'm glad, like, the 14-year-old boys convinced you. on the bus. And not her parents. (laughs) On September 7th, a full-blown search effort is launched with dogs, ATVs, helicopters, hundreds of on-the-ground volunteers sweeping the woods and handing out flyers, and Elizabeth's face plastered all over the news. In the days that followed for Lizzie in the bunker, the sexual assaults she endured at the hands of Vincent Filiot were constant and horrific. 
Her day would literally begin with a violent assault, and then he would leave her alone for a short time and would repeat the assault a few hours later. And these assaults would occur between two and five times a day. In addition, Filial would repeatedly torture Lizzie, threaten to kill her, and would scream at her without warning so that she genuinely had no idea which moment might prove to be her last. And when he wasn't doing these things, he would feed her and force her to watch the news with him and show her the footage of her own mother and family members sobbing and pleading for any information about the whereabouts of their daughter. Vincent very much meant this to be another level of emotional torture and control towards Lizzie so that he could take sick pleasure in her seeing her family plead for her life and revel in what he believed was his total control over the situation. While he did this, Lizzie could hear helicopters whirring overhead as they combed the woods searching for her, and several times law enforcement actually came so close to the bunker that they literally walked across its mouth so that Lizzie and Vincent could see their shadows darkening the thin sliver of light between the earth and the bunker trapdoor. So close, but they may as well have been miles away, because Vincent said that if Lizzie so much as made a sound, he would detonate the bomb in the box around her neck. But Lizzie was far smarter once again than what Benson gave her credit for. And instead of letting all of this horrible abuse and manipulation make her be defeated, as she sat in chains and forced to watch her mother beg for her life on national television, Lizzie let herself feel hope that she was being searched for. And this lit a fire within her that she was going to do whatever it took to outsmart this captor. Each day that went by, Lizzie somehow found it in herself to endure Vincent's relentless torture and rape. And at night, once he had fallen asleep in the bunker, she would lie awake and let her mind turn over and over how she could manage to escape. She knew that she was going to have to turn the power tables. As of now... He was the one in total physical control. He had the weapons and booby traps, and he had her chained. She realized that she would have to somehow get control of his gun. So one of the nights as he slept, Lizzie decided to make a move. Ever so slowly, one tiny Velcro hair at a time, she peeled back the strap that held Vincent's handgun in its holster, and holding her breath and praying he would stay asleep, Painstakingly, she slipped the gun free, held it against his motherfucking head, Mm. and pulled the trigger. But the gun jammed and would not fire. And a devastated Lizzie had to slide the gun back into the holster. It was a miracle that he didn't wake up, but she knew that trying that again was just too risky. And she would have to find a different way to get the upper hand. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That, oh my gosh, she needs a sling for the giant balls on her (laughs) to put it as crudely as I possibly can. Oh man, I would have been sweating so bad. Oh my gosh, that was so, so badass. 
And again, Vincent, smarter than you think she is. Yeah. And also, I just hate for her that it did not end right there. That she was not able to pull the gun, it be done, and then she could just leave. But Take that flare gun. Oh. Put it right into his mouth. Oh my gosh. I get, yeah, I don't really know much about those, but I would assume if you get shot with one of those, it's still pretty bad. I think he'd be down for a little bit. <laughs> what do I know? He would at least be incapacitated. <laughs> oh. But yeah, regardless, I, oh my gosh. And if you've ever seen one of, like a police officer walking around with one of those Velcro things on their handguns it look I mean that would be really difficult to get open without waking somebody up so absolutely and to put it back in and had she even handled a gun before you know like what was the I I certainly had never handled a gun when I was 14 to be like on like was the safety on is that the articles that I read just said that the gun jammed. Okay. So maybe it was and she wasn't aware yeah. or that the gun actually did just jam because that does happen. Or maybe, I mean, who knows? Yeah. There's any number of things that could have happened. But yeah. Or you never know, like, maybe it was some, it like, ultimately worked out better that it didn't happen because what if she had pulled the trigger and the recoil like made the bullet not actually hit him and then he would have certainly not uh reacted to that well so yeah (laughs) (laughs) she just like hits his eyeball like from the side grazes oh my god oh Mm -hmm. man yeah but that's just a such a harrowing horrible situation but she is a badass bitch as a full week played out it was apparent to lizzie that vincent had absolutely no intention of letting her go and even if overpowering him with a weapon was outside of her reach she knew she would have to try a different approach and what she does next is truly incredible and we genuinely don't understand how she as a 14-year-old child had the presence of mind in spite of the torture she was enduring in a fucking hole in the ground to do this. But Lizzie, clever girl that she is, <laughs> begins to emotionally manipulate Vincent Filiaw. Instead of silently enduring his assaults, she started pretending to like it. And instead of crying or silently staring off into space whenever he addressed her, she started calling him baby. She also started asking him about his interests, laughing and giggling, oh my god, at his god-awful horrifying attempts at flirtation and jokes. Basically, she allowed her captor to believe that his wildest fantasies and beliefs about women had come true, that you might have to start forcing them to have sex with you against their will, but deep down they really want it and you will make them fall in love with you. 
this is an absolutely disgusting scenario that plays out in so much pornography. And again, this is not us coming for folks who have a healthy relationship with ethical porn. We are talking about how detrimental the consumption of these violent rape fantasies over and over for people who already have these predatory like predispositions consuming this violent content over and over until they must act on their compulsions and it becomes a full-blown addiction like in Vincent Filios case until that fantasy becomes indistinguishable from a person's reality like for him. And in this case, Lizzie was able to puzzle this out and use it to her advantage because as she pretended to be into the disgusting Vincent Filial and had even started calling him baby, as she was pumping up his delusional and narcissistic ego, she began gaining his trust. The more she convinced Vincent that she was a willing participant in their relationship, the less he would have sudden, violent, verbal, and physical assaults against her. At one point, Vincent even tells Lizzie that he loves her. Oh my god. Pause so I can gag real quick. And she not only tells him that she loves him too, but that she wants to be with him in a committed relationship. Thank you, Vincent, for just imposing myself into her shoes but someone so disgusting like that saying I love you then from there on out I would never be able to hear someone say I love you without picturing his ugly fucking mole face like ugh, that's Maybe so still violating and me to throw up <laughs> oh gosh ew but this is days this isn't weeks this isn't months this isn't a year she did this in a matter of yeah days that's really incredible that she oh. turned the tables that quickly mm-hmm. because there are other survival stories where young women have done this but it has taken them incredible determination over years yeah. to gain the trust of their well, and that's it. that says a lot about Vincent. He's just a yeah. dumbass. He yeah. is just a dumbass. Truly. And also an indication of his dumbassery. If you look at pictures oh. of this bunker that he uh, oh. dug, he was a construction worker at, at one point. But the ladder that he built going down into the bunker is like two sticks and then... A bunch of other sticks that he broke and then tied with like rope, but he didn't even lay them straight. They're like crooked AF. And how, he sir? He could have just had a fucking ladder. <laughs> like, <laughs> he really could. He have probably just went had down to the fucking river and gnawed on a tree <laughs> like a beaver, and that's how he got his material. I do not want somebody working on a construction crew that cannot lay a stick straight that is a problem but yes certainly was not the brightest french fry in the (laughs) box what the fuck that's staying genevieve that's staying (laughs) there was a lot of uh oh my god what is like i don't even know things happening in my brain at that point of that game was not the brightest bulb not the sharpest knife 
not the saltiest French fry in the box. He's the butt fry. Uh, that shriveled brown fry mm-hmm. at the bottom mm-hmm. that you're just like, oh, I'll just throw that one away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That is Vincent. <sighs> Anywho. <laughs> he was not shining bright like a diamond French fry. <laughs> oh, gosh. The more she draws him in, the less violent his sexual assaults on her become. And we feel weird even saying that because, I mean, if it's rape, it's violence, period. Mm, Yeah. All we're saying is that whenever it was happening, it was less physically painful for Lizzie when she was able to make Vincent believe that she was into it. And if that meant he would see her more as a person and make it less easy for him to harm her, that is all that mattered. Mm, Yeah. Like, oh, the strength she had. Yeah. She knew that this was the ultimate mind game, and she was playing for her life. Caitlin, what do you think about there's always two different camps that I hear people fall into when Mm -hmm. you talk about surviving a sexual assault, and it's either you fight Mm -hmm. as absolutely hard as you can, or you do what she did and pretend to like it and uh, this is solely just us talking this is our Mm -hmm. opinion and in the moment you have no idea what you're going to do or what you what you even can do because I think it depends on the the predator and I think it also depends on the position that you are in but I, yeah, because it's different if it's like a back alley, like, yeah. bitch, I'm fighting. Like, at yeah. least in my mind, I think I'm fighting. Yeah. If you're taken to a secondary location, yeah, maybe fighting is playing along. Yeah, or if it was, I, yeah, I feel weird even talking about it because there's so many variables that it's, I don't think you can say, well, this is what I would do. And then you just hate that you even have to think Mm -hmm. about that possibly happening but to me she is able to read him so well that she's able to assess that how am I going to make this more endurable for myself as a victim I'm going to play him and pretend that I'm into it and I do believe that that was the absolute smartest thing that she could have done absolutely I also don't believe there's anything wrong you can do as a victim in those situations because you are the victim. You, exactly. The only, the only wrong thing is what's being done to you. So all I know is that if anything was ever put near my mouth, it's coming off. <laughs> oh, my God. Because I will bite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will, I'm a. Yep. <sighs> I don't know. I like but, to think that I'm a fighter, but anytime yeah. Jacob like creepily pops up in the house, I'm, <laughs> I immediately scream and drop to the floor. You play dead. Yes. Yeah. Oh man. She did. I mean, but yeah, there's two different. I, I don't know. There's well, there's no fight right way to yeah. play the victim. Play the victim. That sounds horrible. No. I know what you're trying to say. <sighs> when you're a victim, you're a victim. Period. But it's just. When you have a bird's eye view of a situation like this or imagining Mm -hmm. yourself in a situation like this, I think it's only normal as human beings to try to like puzzle through what we would do and 
as a way to have control of a situation you absolutely have no control over. So, yeah. At 14, she she did amazing. She did light years ahead of her time. I mean, shit. She survived. She Yeah. And the incredible work that Lizzie has put up to this point into manipulating her own abuser pays off even further when suddenly Vincent stops chaining her up before he goes to sleep. And he even starts taking her out with him at night for short periods to show her where he has all his booby traps. (laughs) Oh, he probably thinks they're like on a date. And he's being such a good captor by showing her where she might get blown up fuck off (laughs) (laughs) but again elizabeth pretended to be super interested and grateful that vincent was showing her around she was smiling and flirtatiously twirling her hair around her fingers so that she could pull strands of it out and drop it on the ground for law enforcement to find One of the nights that Vincent took Lizzie out of the bunker, she felt a jolt of electricity shoot through her when she saw the glow of a cell phone as Vincent flipped it open in the dark to send a text message. She manages to convince Vincent to let her have his cell phone for short periods of time so that she can play games. Mm, So smart. And when she does so, she pays close attention to its layout, and how to effectively navigate it. But all she does is play games and make him feel like the best person ever for letting her do something she enjoys. So much so, again, his guard lowers, and a little more, and even more, trust is established between them. Mm, So smart. I think that might be one of the smartest things she's done yet, because that would have disarmed him even further that she's asking for something that could be a tool Mm -hmm. that she could so obviously use to get away from him but Mm -hmm. she's like oh I have no interest in actually getting away from you I just want to play games yeah I'm I'm so happy just you and I hanging out together I just want to play games with this I'm not even thinking about texting or calling anyone else and because he is (laughs) dumb (laughs) <laughs> because he's not the brightest French fry in the pot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, she... Uh, that gosh. was smart. But that she's, like, paying attention so that she can quickly open it and get to where she wants to go. At the same time, Lizzie continues working day by day to gain Vincent's trust. The publicity surrounding her disappearance and search for her is waning. Less volunteers are showing up to search the woods, and the whirring helicopters overhead become less and less. Uh, I know I said this. Who trained the dogs? Oh, yeah. Those search dogs left her shoes and was leaving hair. Yeah. I guess. Hell, if they walked over her. Yeah. I don't know if the dogs were with her. Yeah. I'm just going to assume. That I'm very curious about because... It seems like she should have been detected. Something should have been oh. detected. Like, how did they not find her shoes? Yeah. That, that None of that makes particular sense to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. So, new stories are taking up the news cycle. And Vincent is feeling pretty good about himself for managing to outsmart the entire entourage of South Carolina's 
law enforcement. Well, enjoy it while you can, little mole rat. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I can kind of see the Mm -hmm. little naked mole rat. Yep. With glasses. With his bald head. Yeah. Lizzie knows that she has to try again to do something that is going to get noticed by the outside world and rekindle that search for her. On Wednesday, the 13th of September, 2006, Lizzie's seventh day in the bunker. She waited until night fell, and as Vincent drifted off to sleep, and bear in mind that as these days pass, they're not just sitting around. We do need to reiterate that she's being sexually assaulted repeatedly during the day, so she's enduring this horror and then being a fucking spy kid at night after Phil Yaw has fallen asleep. Mm-hmm. She manages to get a hold of that cell phone and slowly, as softly as she can press those early 2000s keys, you know, we had to press each key like oh, multiple gosh. times to type a single letter. She types out the following message to her mom's cell phone number. The message read, Hey mom, it's Lizzie. I'm in a hole in the ground near Charm Hill by the road where those big trucks go in and out. Get the police. Go be careful. He has bombs hidden. In the dark, as Vincent slept, Lizzie climbed up the makeshift ladder holding the cell phone and managed to stick one hand out of the hatch, holding the phone to press send. She waits for the check mark to show up on the screen, but as soon as she presses send every single time over and over, it says, message failed to send. Her body felt alive with terror and her hands were clammy with sweat, knowing that at any moment, if Vincent woke up, his devastation at her betrayal and ensuing rage at realizing this whole time she'd been manipulating him would mean her immediate death. For three nights in a row, Lizzie eases the phone from a sleeping Vincent, types out the message, crawls up the ladder, and presses send over and over until the fear of him waking up forces her back down, praying that despite all odds, somehow a message would get through. On Friday the 15th of September, after nine days of torture and captivity, Madeline Schof is getting ready to attend a vigil for Lizzie. The searches for her have turned up absolutely nothing, and every day that goes by, Madeline and Don and Donnie feel like they die a little more desperately, (laughs) a little more desperate for any news about Lizzie. Before she leaves the house, Madeline just so happens to check the messages on her cell phone. Now, it's important to note here that even though Madeline had a working cell phone, It apparently was one she had just for convenience and emergencies. The Shofs mostly used their landline, and that's the number they gave out to people. Hmm. But when she checked it, unbelievably, there was a text message from an unknown number. Oh my gosh. It was the one that Lizzie had so desperately tried sending for days. One had made it through. Oh my gosh. The Shofs immediately contact the sheriff's office, and while, unsurprisingly, he tells them it's probably just a hoax, they do run a search on the number, 
and wouldn't you know it, it turns up belonging to one Vincent Filiaw. They reach out to his former girlfriend, the one who'd filed charges against him for sexually assaulting her 12-year-old daughter, and she confirmed it was his number. The phone also pings in the area that Lizzie specified to her mom, and I'm not sure why they, at this point, did not go in with guns blazing, sirens blaring, I mean like... Anything. Yeah. Uh, Especially if they're taking seriously threats of a bomb, uh, you would think they'd be like rushing in. But what really doesn't make sense to us, though, is that on that same night, Lizzie's text message that she sent to her mom is broadcasted on the local news. I am not sure who made this decision, and I don't want this to turn into massive law enforcement bashing because I know that there were law enforcement that were doing their absolute best That is not what I'm speaking to, but this seems like a very dumb decision to make, especially now that you know who the phone message came from, Vincent Filiaw, who has been, who is in your system as a violent sexual predator of a child. It is a child who has gone missing and who is using this person's phone to say, help, why would you br- put that out on the news? I mean, maybe what they're information's like, going. What are you going to get from doing that? Yeah, like that would just make somebody see that and go, "Oh fuck," and then flee or kill the victim. Like that. That just who fucked up? Yeah. Who? It. That's what makes me think that it was almost like a leak of yeah. some sort. That it wasn't actually the police, I don't know. But it doesn't make sense. However, it happened. It shouldn't have happened, and that was a major file that under oopsie. Mm. On September fifteenth, for the first time in days, helicopters are suddenly back in the air. Vincent panics, wondering why the search has regained momentum. Hmm. So what does he do? He turns on the news and everywhere are headlines that Madeline had received a text message from Elizabeth. Oh, my God. Lizzie's blood froze. Vincent was furious and asked if it was her. She started crying and told him that she would never do that to him and it must have been fake. He was incredibly agitated and she could tell he was trying to gather his thoughts. She literally thought this might be the end, and she had pushed him over the edge. Miraculously, he suddenly turned to her and asked what he needed to do next to save himself. Oh, my God. (laughs) What an idiot. He really is. Elizabeth, in a stroke of genius, says that he should probably pack his stuff and leave while he could, because the police were probably going to get to him. She didn't want to see him in jail. Mm. There's a wonderful moment in a YouTube uh, video where she's being interviewed very shortly after this. And the interviewer asks her what she said to him when he asked her, you know, what do I do? And the little smile that she gives to the interviewer (laughs) when she's like, 
I told him I just wanted him to be safe. Smile, wink, wink. I was like, yes, Elizabeth, that she's able to see like the dark humor and how dumb he was and her cleverness in that situation and be like proud of herself. It just made me so happy because some of that like teenage sass comes through and she's like, I told him I just wanted him to be safe. (laughs) I love it. Yes. I would not want to get in a fight with her because she know she could probably uh, like argue you under the table. Yeah. As soon as Vincent took his last steps out of the bunker hatch, Lizzie told him that she loved him, and the moment he was out, slammed the hatch of the bunker and tied it as tight as she could. Finally, she was alone. Hope flooded through her, but she knew that she couldn't risk leaving right away, because Philia might be waiting outside to test her, so she decided to wait until morning. On September 16th, Lizzie woke up to find that she was still alone, and she practically flew up the bunker ladder. The thought of stepping onto one of the bombs that Vincent told her he'd placed around the bunker kept her from running off right away, so she looked around and says it was the first time that she'd seen the outside in the daytime and was struck by how beautiful it was to see the trees and feel the fresh air again. She couldn't hear or sense anyone around her, so Lizzie decided to yell as loud as she could. She yelled and yelled over and over, and finally she heard her name yelled back. Immediately, Lizzie fell to the ground and started crying. A police captain burst out of the trees, ran up to her, scooped her up, told her that she was okay and that she was safe. He then carried her all the way up the hill to the command post where an ambulance was standing by. Once they were nearly there, Lizzie asked to be put down and said, I'm all right. I actually saw in an interview with um, this particular police officer that the way that she said it, it was almost like she was like, no, I want to be put down because I'm walking out of here. Like, I don't need to be carried. I got this. Vincent did not break her. No. When Madeline Schof saw the white truck coming up the road at around 7.30 a.m., and the police captain literally running to the chauffeur's front door. I I can't even imagine. Her heart must have been... Oh, my God. Ah. Uh, but the officer was crying, not with sadness, but with excitement. So hard that Madeline could barely understood him as he sobbed, We found your daughter. Madeline was so happy that she could not stop crying. Lizzie fell sobbing into her mother's arms and would say later that it was the best feeling ever to hug her parents again and feel her mom holding her. Quote, just to know that I was with her again and she didn't have to worry about me. Oh my God. (sighs) 
also how selfless to be like my mom doesn't have to worry about me exactly oh Oh my gosh gosh. that wouldn't be what was going through my mind also good on that police officer for not giving in to toxic masculinity and being stoic like he let himself cry that was awesome yeah 10 days you don't days. expect to bring the child no. home to their parents alive. Like, you know that they, at that point, thought that they were looking for a body <sighs> if she was still in the area. I mean, Fuck. really. Ugh. A few hours later, police get a tip from a woman who says she encountered Vincent trying to steal her car. Oh, my God. She saw he had a long knife hanging off his belt, and she recognized him from the internet. Oh, God. So digging the tunnels wasn't cutting it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) He was literally trying to steal her car, but when she caught, when she cussed him out, he said, okay, never mind. (laughs) A little bitch. (laughs) And started running down the sidewalk. He really is like the worst kind of pansy, like that all it took was her cussing him out and be like, oh, never mind. So that he, he has to control the most vulnerable people like you you can't even pick on somebody your own size police acted quickly and located him a few hours later and it took him about a minute before he denied everything and said the truth would come out in the end shut the fuck (laughs) up shut up vincent phil y'all He did agree a few days later to an interview with Dateline's Keith Morrison, like literally right before his trial started. And in this interview, he tried to say that Elizabeth was, y'all, he literally says Elizabeth was a wild person. And when Keith Morrison asks him, so you're saying that she was a willing participant in your whole Schemamajig. Schemamajig. Uh, <laughs> Vincent's like, well, yeah. How did Keith Morrison keep from guffawing in his face? Like, that is so laughable. He he sat there with a little smirk on his <sighs> face and he was just like, she loved it. She loved it. She was a wild person. I would have to be in a cage in order to interview somebody like that because that would be the moment that I launched across the table. Oh my God. And Lizzie herself barely had 10 days to recover from this ordeal before she had to then go and face Vincent in court. But she said, because she is a badass, that she wanted to go. And that as she sat in court, she felt overwhelmingly happy knowing that he was now the one in chains while she sat there and watched Yes, 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 girl. Um, Without us getting too much into the trial, because it was super short and nobody cares, Vincent Filiaw was sentenced to 421 years in prison without the possibility of parole. And according to Lizzie, quote, I beat him. Yes, Yes, you did. You beat him. Goodbye, Vincent, forever and ever. 
So where are the subjects of our story today? In 2021, Vincent Filial was found unresponsive in his cell at McCormick Correctional Institution at 51 years old in South Carolina after having served 14 years of his sentence. No cause of death has been officially released that we know, but the Correctional Institute did say that there were no immediate signs of foul play. Hmm. It's that word immediate that I'm a little sus about. They say there were no immediate signs of foul play, but... He's dead. Yeah, he's dead, and that is the end of his story. Again, he probably shriveled up living above ground for so Mm, long yeah the sunlight was just too much and most importantly where is the motherfucking badass elizabeth shope elizabeth is currently 30 years old and living a normal and happy life as she deserves yes she graduated from college and is working as a dental assistant in casey south carolina In a 2013 interview with WIS-TV, the brave Elizabeth said, I feel normal. I go to work, come home, play video games, hang out with friends on the weekends. It helps me not think about it and feel like I'm living a normal life. You can be a survivor just like I am. It simply takes faith. It takes talking to someone and encouragement that it's not the end of the world. Oh, man. Well, yeah, that was that. A survival story. (laughs) (sighs) A incredible survival story and one that we hope to God none of us ever have to live through. But Elizabeth deserves all of the standing rounds of applause forever. And her parents, too. Just know you can bite a finger off like a carrot, (laughs) you can buy other body parts, and you can shove your fingers into the person's eyeballs and dig them out. Just (laughs) if it ever gets to that point. Isn't it something like it only takes the amount of force to, oh, you said it, but like Like literally bite a carrot carrot to actually sever a human finger. That's what I've read, and it's like something with the brain. Yeah, that stops stops us from doing it. Oh my gosh. Oh, but like, oh. Oh, that now that just makes me think of the Lord of the Rings when Ew. a finger when gets it... chomped. <laughs> Yikes. Oh. So yeah. That uh I feel honestly worn out emotionally after that and like I don't have a whole lot else to say other than I'm sure the next one will not have so happy of an ending but we definitely wanted to give you guys a survival story to break up some of the more horrible things that we've covered recently and in the meantime while you are waiting for our next episode to drop we would love to hear your case suggestions 
you can email them to campingiscanceled at gmail.com. We would also love to hear any personal stories that you have of a paranormal experience, a survival story, just anything that as you've been listening to our podcast, you feel like you need to tell us, we would love to hear. Mm -hmm. You can find and follow us on Instagram and TikTok. We are now on the talk at camping is canceled if you would like to support our work and get some little perks you can follow us on patreon at camping is canceled and we also wanted to tell you guys that we are going to be starting giving you more content because we don't already have enough on our plates but (laughs) (laughs) We really love doing this podcast and not not only do we really love true crime, but we want to talk a little bit more about paranormal things. Things that go bump in the night. Yes. Um, Urban legends, cryptids, all of that kind of stuff. So we're going to be pulling stories ourselves to tell you guys and this also where we really want you to come in with your own stories so we haven't decided yet uh actually no we did decide what day of the week we're gonna drop (laughs) because we are calling it friday night frights that is going to be our uh little segment that we're going to be bringing y'all on fridays so yeah be looking for Friday Night Frights to drop in your feed here soon in addition to your Wednesday 9 a.m. episodes. So yeah, Caitlin, you got anything else we need to talk about or add here at the end? No. Hmm. (laughs) No. What is tomorrow? The 4th of July. So this will be coming out the day after the 4th of July. July 5th. July 5th. And we hope everyone had a lovely July the 4th and nobody blew their fingers off with the firework. Stay safe. Don't choke on a hot dog. Don't drunk and drive. (laughs) The hot dog. The hot dog. (laughs) The hot dog, yes. Oh, gosh. Don't consume alcohol and go down a slip and slide at 27 and... 32 years of age. Yes. We're too old for that shit. Mistakes were made, and there will be a real forthcoming about that. (laughs) If you see me walking a little crooked, (laughs) no, you didn't. And pity subscribe to our Patreon. Yes. Pay for chiropractic bills. (laughs) Please. Okay. (laughs) Till next time, lights out campers. Bye. Bye.